Let's pray. We need to pray. Let me have one of the regular chairs. Yes. I'm not going to sit on it and teach. I just need to just sit down. Hallelujah. 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 Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Hallo bukura ta 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 ba 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 ka ta ta ti e kala rota la ra ta ta ti e ta la ra ta 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 ti e ki e koloro ro 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 to ba ta ti ala ro 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 ba ta hai ala ro 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 to ro ro to ba ta ti e kala ro 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 bukura ta la ra ta 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 Jesus' name. Malorobukura tatahai. Malorobus nasta. Malorobukura tatabahai. Malorobukura tatabahai.
Praise God. I have a question for you. I have a question for you. If I passed out a stack of papers and you took it and you didn't have to sign it, and you wrote down the list of things that you expect your pastor to do, I wonder how revealing that list would be. Visit the sick, go to the hospital, do counseling. Etc. 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 I wonder how many of us would put at the top of our list of expectations of what our pastor would do is pray. I wonder how many of us would put that at the top of the list. Only you know what you would put on your list, and I didn't give you a lot of time to think about it. didn't want to. I wanted you to react, not think. I know in America, the expectation of the people over there that the pastor will uh, come to the hospital or visit your sick or always be available for counseling and Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I would be shocked if 10% of the saints in America would put at their list that their first priority and expectation of their pastor would be pray. Just, I don't want you. To th- I want you to think about that a little bit here. This is called a war, and it is called a war. But <laughs> I'm afraid that some of us have become very tunnel visioned on what that means. And we really don't understand how that fits in our daily lives. What does that mean? I want to read you some scripture, if I could, please. And uh, honestly, before I... (laughs) Over the last couple of weeks before I headed this direction, if you would have asked me, I would have told you we were going to do mostly praying and that would be it. But that's not what I'm feeling right now. And we'll see how that goes. Acts chapter 2, I think you've heard of this before. Uh, I'm going to read, just start with verse 40. We know what 38 and 39 says, hopefully. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourself yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. 
and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles, and all that were believed had all things common, so their possessions, etc., etc. And the, the scripture says, verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. But if you go back, the, the, uh, they continued steadfastly. The Greek there literally means to be earnest towards, uh, to persevere, to be constantly diligent, to attend to assiduously all the exercises of, et cetera, et cetera. So this, in other words, at this point, these things were their priorities. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and in prayers. Now, let's just go a couple of chapters after that to, to chapter 6. Just four chapters later. Just four chapters later. Verse 1. And in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring among the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason. It does not make sense. This is not right. That we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Not because they were too good. Not because they were too important. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, who we may appoint over this... What's the word? It didn't take long for the re revival of the church to become business. Four chapters. And they're now running it like a business. Now they're doing things like you would do in a business. Get your time management book out. Let's do our strategies. Our plans and purposes because this is now business. Not by spirit, not by preaching, but by our intellect and our planning and our work, saith man. Because we're busy. Because that's what the root word of business is busyness. <laughs> Most business is just busyness. 
And when, you, when you're no longer trying to participate in the kingdom of God by, for, and through the Spirit, you're now involved in religious busyness. And what does that produce? Contention and strife. Because our busy apostles are not giving us the same attention that they're giving others. Ooh, Lord. Four chapters is all it took for the priority of prayer to be relegated to the back burner because of busyness. Now, those of you that were in Tabernacle of Joy Sunday, don't give the answer away. How many of you believe praise is important? Come on now. You got to fall for this. It's not fun if you don't fall for it. Right? You believe praise is important. See, you, you do know me enough to know you don't raise your hand on anything. How many, <laughs> this is, if this works Sunday morning, it won't work as well tonight. How many of you have ever read the verse that says, my house should be called a house of praise? Show me book, chapter, and verse where it ever says, my house should be called a house of praise. Show me any place in the Bible where it says, my house should be called a house of praise. And if there's anything the average Pentecostal church puts any time and attention into, what is it? Praising. Getting ready to praise. Practicing for praise. And praising. We will sing songs to death until people are so exhausted they can't even listen to the Word of God. Because we think if we sing enough, Something's going to happen, and we're too stubborn and insensitive to realize there ain't nothing moving. Irritates me to death. I, I, I'm fine with singing if something's happening. But I don't judge what's happening by what I see. Several years ago, after my son David became senior pastor, my wife had been the worship leader from our organ for 37 years. and She felt like it was time to step aside. And we had a lady that she had trained and was going to be her replacement, but she met a guy, a Pentecostal preacher online, and got married and moved away. <laughs> and so we didn't have anybody that had been prepared to do what she did. So we ended up having to hire some guy to come. And he came to a few services where she sang, and he said to us as we talked about his employment, if you're expecting me to replace her, you can forget it. It's not possible. Well, I knew that. Not because of him. Well, I think she has tremendous anointing playing a keyboard, 
I especially enjoy the organ. And her singing is powerful and anointed. The most important thing was, wasn't the mechanics of the music and the singing that was ever important to her. It was flow. Finding the flow of the Holy Ghost. So this, this dear brother had been there about six months. And he says to me one day, you know, this place isn't like any place I've ever been the music minister of. I knew what he was talking about, but I, I wanted him to talk enough to hang himself. <laughs> figuratively. I said, what do you mean? He said, you guys don't ever just throw away services. Where I've been, there have been times we just put in our time and got service over with. We had things to do. But you guys don't ever do that here. He said, there's pressure every service. And I looked at him and said, and I said, yes, sir. And let me tell you something. I don't have to be on this platform but five seconds. And I know if you found the flow of the Spirit for this service tonight or you haven't. Because I don't care how good you can sing. And I don't care how good you can play. If you're not, if you haven't found and you're allowing the flow of the Spirit of God to flow through you, you are wasting everybody's time. No offense, not picking on you because we're all like this. If we pastors really care like we say we would, the moment we picked up that they're just singing, no matter how sincerely, and there's no flow, and there's nothing happening, we would spare them and everybody else and stop it and say, we're just going to pray a while. Find a place to pray. Get off these instruments. Let's pray. But we don't do that because we have a church service liturgy we have to follow. You know the one that's in the Bible? You know the one in the Bible where it says you're supposed to Open in prayer, and then you're supposed to sing three or four songs 14,000 times. And then you, you make announcements, and you take an offering, and you preach, and you have an altar service so you can go home. You know that one you found in the Bible, you, you know? I don't know what Bible you're using, but apparently we found that. Because we're so committed to it, surely we found it in the Bible. We're so determined to make it work. Surely we found it in the Bible. Surely. I asked today, how many miracles did Jesus do in church? I was surprised that somebody didn't say, well, look at all the miracles he did out there on the, at Sermon on the Mount where he taught and did miracles. I just wanted somebody to say that so I could say, yeah, and there's no evidence they ever sang one song. So since we believe church has to have singing, that makes it not a church service. Now, I love to sing, and I'm a musician, and I'm not against musicians and singing. The greatest joy of my life has been singing with her all these years. First, 
We had barely even started dating. It's the first thing we ever really did in ministry together was sing together in church. I love to sing. Not against singing. I'm against performing. When there's no flow. And you know why that's the case? Because we spend a whole lot more time practicing to praise than praying to praise. Pastors, I guarantee you, if you start a service and say to every musician and singer, how many of you have prayed at least an hour this morning before you, this service? And you eliminated everybody hadn't prayed an hour this morning off your platform? You could sing a cappella. Why? It's just the rut we Pentecostals have got into. It's a rut. It's a carnal rut. And I'm not speaking bad against those who are trying to lead us in worship and singing and praise. But if you're doing that through your own natural skill and you haven't laid before the Lord and submitted yourself to God for him to use you, Carnality only ever produces carnality. Carnality can't produce a move of the Spirit. Carnality can produce an emotional reaction. I got a question. What part of the Bible teaches us about dancing? Clapping our hands. Raising our hands. Shouting for joy. What part? Psalms. What covenant is Psalms in? And yet we judge our Pentecostal services by Old Testament demonstrations that they were able to do without even having the Holy Ghost. And we call that a move of God. Am I against all of that? No. But that's not even New Testament. You don't, even, you don't have to pray to do that. You don't even have to have the Holy Ghost to do that. They did it in the Old Testament without the Holy Ghost. And those are the things that make us Pentecostal. There was no Pentecostal in the Old Testament. I'm not trying to be unkind here. You know what I'm doing in Singapore? I believe you can handle this. There's a lot of places I can't go because they can't handle this. I'm I'm not, I didn't come here to be offensive to people. So I politely find ways to turn people down when they invite me to come. When I know good and well they can't handle this. They can't handle it. They, won't, they don't want to go where I want to go. I want to be apostolic. I want to see a move of God. I want to see people saved. Hey, here it is. You can put this on the screen for me if you don't mind. Psalm 63, verse 1. This is critical stuff, Sam. This right here. It's the difference between the guy that is mightily used and the guy that just becomes a good Pentecostal preacher right here. I'm about to show it to you. 
Oh God, thou art my God. Early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee. My flesh longeth for thee in a dry and a thirsty land where no water is. What am I thirsty for, David? What are you thirsting for, David? What is it I need to be thirsty for, David? Now, the King James English doesn't tell the story. I'm hungry and thirst to see thy power and thy glory in the sanctuary so as I've seen thee. Now, what the English doesn't tell us is this. Those two words, see, Verse 2, please. Those two words, see, to see thy power and thy glory in the sanctuary so as I have seen thee. It's not the same, same Hebrew word. And because we don't know most of the time that it's not the same Hebrew word, we miss the whole point of the message. What is he saying? For the Clement, he's saying this. I'm so thirsted and hungered for you, God. And I've spent so much time in your presence. I have seen things in my spirit. But seeing them in my spirit's not good enough. I'm waiting on you, God, till you let me participate in seeing those things I've seen in here manifested so that me and everybody else can see them in manifestation. And yet, what do we do? What do we do? We're willing to just participate church service after church service. Hey, folks, even twins have different fingerprints. Even twins have different DNA. What is our deal of trying to make one service, like the net last service, like the last service. Like, what is our deal? What is our deal trying to confine God in some box of Pentecostal expectation? Because this is the way we've always done it. You mean to tell me God's never, ever said to you, forget all of that? I want you to just have them stand and pray and read the text and preach. He's ever done that with you? Oh, he's tried. But pressure, pressure keeps you from doing that, see? Because these folks are practiced and they're going to be offended. <laughs> I'm not the pastor anymore, but I'll tell you what I did as a pastor. There were times I did that just so weak, I could see what their attitude was going to be when they didn't get the saying after all that practice. Because if their motive was to praise God and the man of God says, thank you very much for all you've done, but we're not doing that today. If they got a good attitude, then they, maybe they need to be back up there next Sunday if it's time to praise. If they got a bad attitude, thank you very much for letting me know you need to sit down for three months till you get prayed through because your attitude stinks. Say, that's not fair. 
What about all the weeks and months and years that I had experience where I spent countless hours praying and studying for a message to get to church and the Lord changed it the last minute? Or after all that time of prayer and studying and sure I have a direction, get to church and he won't even let me preach because something else happens. That's supposed to be okay with me, but not. Really? Is the goal here to complete successful traditional church services or to get in the presence of God and the Lord be able to move and lives be able to change? Any church service that does not alter eternity wasn't worth even getting out of bed for. Any church service, no matter how good people feel when they leave, that doesn't alter eternity is a complete waste of time. Because the definition of a successful church service is not everybody feeling good and going home happy. And you know something? The majority of people in this room are not preachers. And I'm saying this to you. If you think the weight of all that's on the preacher and you think it's acceptable with God for you to come to church with no expectations and no hunger and no desperation for God to move and work, you're wrong. You see, I'm sorry, brother, where faith is, there's expectancy. When you come to church without any expectation, you come to church without faith. And my Bible says whatever's not of faith is sin. And the reason we come to church with no expectancy, because we didn't pray. And we haven't been praying. Because if you spend time praying and fellowshipping with the Lord and letting him use you in prayer, you come to church with expectancy. Because the King James says, with God all things are possible. But the Greek word translated with there means in the presence of. When I have spent my week in the presence of God, it's impossible to come to church without expectancy. And let me tell you something right now. <laughs> when a bunch of believers come to church with expectancy and hunger and a desperation to hear from God and See God work. Trust me. You're not even going to recognize the services. They will change so dramatically. I know that the Bible is like this. Everything the scripture says, every scripture has multiple levels of understanding to it. For instance, when the scripture says, Jesus talks about his crucifixion, if I be lifted up, I draw all men unto me. One level of understanding there is talking about him being lifted up on the cross. 
and crucified and all men would be drawn. But hey, if I'm crucified with Christ, he's being lifted up, all men are going to be drawn to him. If I lift him up with true worship, all men are going to be drawn to him. Brother Wright, that verse can't meet all of those. Oh, yeah, it can mean all of those. There are different levels of understanding. But here's what you've got to understand. Those levels can't contradict each other or your understanding of any level is wrong. But you hear me. When people of God started getting together and there's hunger and expectancy, faith working, you better have plans to find some other place to have church because the hunger are going to be drawn to it. You having a hard time getting sinners to come to church? It's not the sinners that don't want what we've got. It's sinners don't want what we don't have. Oh, sinners don't want what we've got. Oh, no, that's not the case at all. Sinners don't want what we don't have. If we really lived in a way where what we've got is obvious to everybody, you can't handle all the sinners that want to come to that. They're out there. They're empty. They're hopeless. They're directionless. They're just going through the motions. They're filling up their lives with nothing. And you come in here and God is moving and working and things are happening and you think they don't want that? Okay. How many of you were raised in the were not raised in the church? The Lord brought you to the church and you were saved. Come on, let me see your hands. Oh, isn't that amazing? You wanted this and they don't? That's right. You wanted this, and they don't? What was it you experienced? What was it that touched your heart the first time? Question. When a sinner comes in here now, are they going to feel the same thing you felt? Are they just going to feel a religious church service? Just another church. What are they going to feel? Yeah. That's a big sign. You're right. You know, I believe in structure and I believe in training and all. I believe in all that. But every bit of that is worthless. If our foundation of relationship with him is skewed by tradition and our way of presenting him to the lost is smothered by tradition. So he, the apostle said, hey, hey, oh, Lord have mercy. <laughs> I want you to remember. Tomorrow night or the night after that or whenever, when it's time to pray, 
how much you wish we were praying right now rather than me talking. Okay? Let's see if you want to pray as bad as you think you want to pray and me shut up. Let's see. When that time comes, let's see. Okay? <laughs> Verse 3 again, Acts 6, 3. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out for among you seven men of honest report full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom who we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves... Continually to praise an organization. I want you to hear me right now. Every minister and leader in this place. Every part of the work of God, the work of the church that can be done by human intellect and ability has potential for great good but equally potential for great bad because the weakest area of your life spiritually are the areas that you're good at. Anything you're good at that you don't have to trust the Lord to do through you because I got this. I'll check back with you later, Lord, after I get this done. I got this. I know how to do this. That's not your strength spiritually. That's your weakness. I'll say that again. Any area of your life that you're good at is the, is the open door in your life to carnality because it's hard to really believe that without him I can't do this when I know I can do it. When I know I can do it, it's so hard to believe that without him I could do nothing. And the key to fruitfulness is not what I can do, but what he does through me. That's the key to fruitfulness. So the greatest test of my submission and my faith is not the areas that I can't do that I know I need him to help me do. The greatest areas of test are the areas that I can do without praying, without submitting, without trusting him. And will I? And even after you acknowledge, okay, well, well, I need to pray about this. Do I pray and reach the point where it's not just lip service, but I truly say and mean, Lord, without you, I can do nothing. My brothers and sisters, that is the easiest definition of the difference between spirituality and carnality. Oh, let's look at it. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. 
Romans 8 and 1. There's therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. Next verse. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. Three. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. Next verse. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Next verse. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. But they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. Next verse. For to be carnally minded. I've been raised Pentecost all my life. And the phrase to be carnally minded according to most people's understanding, is somebody that's out there sinning. But you hear me when I tell you that the carnal-minded person is the one that sings through ability and not anointing. The one that plays an instrument through an ability and not anointing. The one that preaches through ability and not anointing. The one that prays religious prayers through effort and not anointing. The one that teaches or witnesses through personality and not anointing. The one that gives to get rather than giving as an act of faith and honoring of God. Carnality is not committing sin in the customary sense. Carnality is doing the things of God through human strength and ability and not by the empowerment of the Spirit. The Greek word here, carnally, comes from the Greek word, uh, the Greek word is carne, which is flesh. A couple of different Greek words are translated flesh. This carne, from which we get the word carnival. Anybody ever heard of the carnival in Brazil? Before Lent, where the debauchery is beyond comprehension. Because they can be as sinful as they want because Lent's coming and they get that little bit of ash on the forehead and all their sins are taken care of so they can sin all they want beforehand because it's all going to be, they're going to be given a free pass during Lent. So it's carnival. You can't even look at the pictures of the costumes that are worn in public. So, carnal flesh isn't just normal, just flesh being flesh. It's flesh flaunting in the face of God. I got this. I'll do this my way. And you're going to accept it. Because this is what I'm offering. 
and you're going to take it. Because you don't have a choice but take it. Because I'm offering it. Is there somebody in the Bible with that attitude? I think his name was Cain. He offered a sacrifice of flesh. His efforts, his labor, and God rejected it. For to be carnally minded is what? Brother Wright, that's strong. I, I know, isn't it? And I'm so thankful I didn't write it. Because if you've got a problem with it, take it up with the one you claim lives inside you. Because he had it written. For to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is what? Oh, God. I really am talking about prayer. You just haven't figured that out yet. You can always tell the attitude of a saint that's been living for God carnally and according to tradition. Because when something bad happens... They get all angry, and their attitude is something along this line. God, after all I've done for you, you let this happen to me? After all I've done, after all I've sacrificed, after all I've given up for you, after all the church services I've come to and prayer meetings I've attended, you let this happen to me? You let this happen in my family? Surely nobody in this room's ever had that attitude before when bad stuff happened in your life. What's that attitude prove? <laughs> You're carnal. Because all that you've done for God, you did it for God. He didn't do it through you. And he accepts. Oh, hang on, Sister Wright. Really, hang on. So it's it's okay. It's not something you haven't heard before, but whoo. <laughs> oh, take a take a deep breath. Here, here it comes. Okay, get ready. <laughs> Everything that you've done for God is worthless to God. And he has rejected and never accepted. He only accepts what he is allowed to do through us. Why? Because the one who does the work gets the credit and the praise. And if I'm doing the work, then I take the credit and praise. But if he's doing the work through me, he gets all the credit and praise. Do you precious folks understand? I'm not talking about fine points here. 
I'm talking about some of the most major, significant, fundamental principles of true apostolic Christianity and spirituality. I've used it many times. The Pentecostal preposition, heard it all my life. Folks, let's live for God. Let's work for God. Live for God. Work for God. Oh, that is so much part of being Pentecostal. Now, it's not biblical. It's not even remotely close to what the Bible teaches. But we practice it. Come on, we need to live for God. We need to work for God. Really? Just just one verse. Just give me one verse anywhere in the Bible where the Lord teaches me to work for Him. To live for Him. Just one verse, please. If you're going to give your whole life to something and to a principle and a, and a pattern, your whole life, living for God, working for God, surely you've got at least one verse. Just one. See, I'm not too worried saying that because I've looked. It's not in there. You can't find one verse that even remotely communicates the concept. In fact, you know what the Lord says? If I needed anything, I wouldn't tell you. How can you do something for someone who doesn't need me to do anything for him? (laughs) We got so much Old Testament and New Testament Christianity, it's just ridiculous. Okay, folks, we got a real need here now. Let's all dig deep and give a sacrifice offering. Hmm. Yes, sir. We need to give a sacrifice offering here tonight. Yes, praise God, a real sacrifice. That's wonderful. Could you show me that in the New Testament? Just one verse. Because here's the principle of sacrifice. I own something. And I willingly, voluntarily give that thing I own up to someone who has a greater need or a greater cause for it. Slight problem. You're not your own. You're bought with a price. Tell me what you can sacrifice to God when you own nothing. Paul said, what do I have? I didn't receive. And if I received it, how can I boast in it? I didn't earn it. I received it. So if everything I got, I didn't earn, I received it. And I don't own anything anyway because I don't own me biblically. Tell me how I could give a sacrifice offering. But do we teach that? Oh, we teach it. We practice it, folks. We got a real need here. Or, oh, we, you know, we do this. Now, there's a, there's a need in this country, a need in that country. And now, we need a real sacrifice to meet this need here. I'll tell you what you do. Tomorrow, 
Go to your bank. Write out a check. Hand it to the teller. Tell me what you'd do if that teller said to you, I'm, I'm sorry, we, we, can't, we can't cash this check right now. It'd be a real sacrifice for us to do this. And you go, well, wait, wait, wait a minute. What do you mean sacrifice? This is my money. Do you have the money? We got the money. You put the money here. And it would be a sacrifice to us to cash this check. No, you, you don't understand. It's not your money. I only trusted you with it temporarily. I want my money. No, no, no. I can't. We, we can't do that today. You, come back and check with us tomorrow, and let's see if it's convenient for us to give you the money. How long would your money be in that bank? And how long has God's deposits been in your life? And how hard it is for him to cash a check on what he's deposited in you without us feeling like he's imposing on us and asking of us something that's unfair and unreasonable. Brother Wright, what's this have to do with prayer? Everything. Because everything I've talked about tonight ultimately is interlaced in and has contaminated prayer and our whole attitude toward prayer. The average Pentecostal prays need-based prayers. And if you've got a need, you can pray. Oh, God. Help me, God. Oh, God. It's bad. Oh, God. Help me. Where are you, God? Don't you care? Oh, God. It's really bad. Oh, God. He takes care of it. And tomorrow, when it comes time to pray, oh, God. Oh, God. What's the difference? Yesterday you had a need. Today you don't. Yesterday you could be earnest, even desperate. Today, you got no earnestness. You no need to be desperate. You had a need yesterday. You don't have a need today. Anybody here resemble all that? Yeah, we do, don't we? Can you tell me where we were taught that in the Bible? When Jesus said, you don't have to ask me for what you need. I know what you have need of before you ask me. So seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. We seek the additions. We don't seek the kingdom. And you wonder why God can't trust us with the resources to reach the world? Because people that pray like that would hoard the blessings and not use them. He can't trust people with blessings that have that attitude. You know what? I got needs, and and if I got a little bit of extra here, I can't give that. 
No, who knows? It may rain tomorrow. See, I got more faith for a rainy day than sunshine. That's why I'm sticking all this stuff away. That's the cliche in America. I'm going to save for a rainy day. Because I can't trust God when it rains in my life. No, sir, I'm going to make sure. I'm going to build me a tower of Babel so I can't ever be affected by a flood again. I'm going to make myself immune to the trials and tests that the Father may bring my way. You save money, you sure better check with God on what your attitude for saving money is. Don't you believe in wealth? I sure do. I think everybody, every Pentecostal ought to have some stocks and bonds. You know the kind where you stick your head in there and they put down it then they, they, they lock you in? That's what they used to call those stocks and bonds. And what we call stocks and bonds today do believers exactly like that. Don't you have any of that, Brother Wright? You can believe this if you want. I don't care if you do or not. No, I do not. No, I don't. I got investments you wouldn't believe in. You wouldn't believe the investments I've got. In the kingdom. You can do with this what you want. I'm only trying to make a point here, okay? I think this is probably my ninth or tenth trip to Singapore. Been your direction a couple of times. Been to Kuala Lumpur. Been to Jakarta. All these trips, nobody's ever paid one penny of my expenses. And I've never accepted an offering for any of it. Why? Because I'm so spiritual? No, because I'm very covetous. I am the most covetous person you've ever met. Because I want every bit of seed sown in the soil of the kingdom that I can possibly get sown. Because God is not unfaithful. And that seed's coming up someday. And I would rather, (laughs) I'd rather have my seed invested with God than any bank or investment in this world. And I'm counting on that. (laughs) I've left her alone. I won't leave too much alone here. That's just it. See, we're really different. And this poor dear sister has to live with me. And uh, (laughs) she's a giver. There's no question she's a giver. But she wouldn't mind saving a little bit. What a trial I am to her. And yet... The Lord has really blessed us.
He's blessed us. But I'm looking for the harvest. I'm looking for the harvest. She and I have given our way out of every financial crisis we've ever been in. I didn't say saved our way. I meant exactly what I said. We have given our way out of every financial crisis we've ever been in. Personally and as a church, we have given our way out of every financial crisis we've ever been in. Why? Because the word works. Carnal intellect, people may get rich, but it's paper money. It's not real riches. What do you do that when the bank, You may maybe you haven't experienced it yet over here, but let me tell you something. It's happened in America a few times. It's going to happen again. When you got your money someplace, you go down and try to draw it out, and the bank's broke. And what's yours doesn't exist anymore. I got a question. Is God a part of your life? Or are you a part of his? It's not the same thing. Is God a part of your life or are you a part of his? Is the kingdom of God a part of your life or are you a part of the kingdom? Are the plans and purposes of God a part of your life or are you a part of the plans and purposes of God? They're not even remotely the same. You may be a good swimmer, and you might be able to find the closest point between Singapore and Malaysia and swim across that. But how about swim across to the closest point of Indonesia? That's quite a bit different, isn't it? How far is what's the closest point? One, one hour on a ferry. And anybody here ready to swim that? No, you see. If you can't trust God to wade across an ankle-deep stream, how are you going to survive the flood when it comes? I'm talking about prayer. I'm talking about attitudes toward prayer. Well, oh, oh, brother, right? I, I need to learn to pray because I'm afraid of all of that. That's exactly what I'm not talking about. <laughs> I'm talking about giving all that stuff up, letting it go, and trusting God, and just saying, "Here I am." <laughs> Oh, Lord, I was, let me finish this before I go on. For to be carnally minded is death, to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Next verse. Because the carnal mind is 
So when you're doing stuff through your strength, when you're praying your Pentecostal prayers, you're actually participating in open hostility toward God. You call it spiritual. But when it's carnal praying, you're in open hostility. That's what the Greek word translated enmity means. In open, defiant hostility toward God. I'm going to pray with my flesh and you're going to like it, God. I'm going to tell you what I want, how I want it, and you're going to do it, God. And if you don't do it, I'm going to tell you all the bad things I think about you. Yeah. I said it this morning. I'll say it again. Steve and Barbara Willoughby, two of the most powerful people I've ever known in the kingdom of God. How many times did this church pray for them to be healed? Did God fail? Yeah. Come on now. Did God fail? Some of us sitting here in this room right now still believe that God let us down. Still believe that God failed us. Letting those two great people of God die of cancer and not an easy death either. It was excruciating to watch it. And I didn't even have to be here to see it all the time. And it was easy, it's easy to ask the question, where are you, God? Don't you care? Oh, he cares all right. He cares. Hey, I'm going to tell you what I, I love. The New Testament retirement package that God had for apostles. They'd worked for God all their lives and it was time to retire. And one guy retired by having his head cut off. And another guy retired by being crucified upside down. And, and uh, they say that Thomas was retired in India being flayed alive with his skin being stripped off his body while he was alive. And, and it was a retirement package. It was God's retirement package. Isn't it amazing that the, of the 12 apostles... Only one of them did not die a violent death. That of the 12 people that were the, the foundation of the church, 11 of them died a violent death. And in in, in according to what we believe is church history, that 12th one, they tried to kill him. They tried to boil him alive in oil and he wouldn't burn. And so they exiled him to the Isle of Patmos. Hey, that's like having your own condo in a resort area, isn't it? The Isle of Patmos. A rocky piece of ground, apparently with no trees, no shade, no nothing. I don't like that, preacher. That's because you don't understand this. You're carnally minded. You don't know what we're doing here. You're participating in religion for what you can get out of it. And 
And people that participate in spiritual warfare with that attitude only do so so they can brag about the devils that they can chase around and the devils that have to listen to them because they're not really into it because of victory and salvation of the lost, none of that. They just it's just it's entertaining, you see. It's it's the sensational, it's the Yeah. Yeah. The problem with that kind of spiritual warfare, it gets old. So then I go on to something else exciting. Seven and a half billion people in the world today. And my rough estimate is 40 to maybe 50% of that seven and a half billion lives in Asia. You put China and India together. You got about two and a half billion right there. With Indonesia, the fourth largest country in the world. And you add all these other nations. Southeast Asia. Philippines. Japan. Bangladesh. Pakistan. Add all that up together. It's easily 40% of the world's populations in Asia alone. You think there's going to be revival in Asia with people that are focused on having church? That's their focus, is having church. What do you do in China when you can't safely have church? Oh, we want to invite you to come to our secret meeting. You could get arrested and be put in jail. Would you want to do that? I mean, how do you invite somebody? Well, I may be mistaken, but I think people don't get invited to those church services till after they're saved. They get witnessed to and taught privately. It's not wise to have an open service where you invite people you don't really know to a service. They could be the one tweeting the police or texting police that shows up and arrests everybody. So if you're going to have church service mentality evangelism, how does that work in the largest nation on earth? It doesn't. Or how about this? As of July the 1st last year, it became illegal to even talk about the name of Jesus in Russia in public. Theoretically, you're not even supposed to talk about Jesus in your home. The only place you legally can talk about Jesus is in a church building. Because the devil is so interested in confining everything you do. To a church building. And in Russia. Russia's trying to force people to live like that. We don't have to be forced. We voluntarily live like that. 
just voluntarily keep everything confined to a church building, a church service. We don't need the government and the secret police and the army to force us to keep Jesus inside a church. We're standing in line waiting for the opportunity to keep him locked up in a building. Aren't we? Because we can hide and hear from our friends and we don't ever have to tell them what we secretly are. Yeah. Well, the government won't allow us to do this. The government won't allow us to do that. Let me tell you something. The government can't stop. No government can stop. They can't stop praying people who know how to pray and have a right attitude and a spirit about prayer and have authority and a power with God and know how to exercise that authority and power in prayer. There's no power on earth that can stop that. The only way they can stop it is kill you, and all they've done is promote you to heaven. You ask in a church service, how many want to go to heaven? Everybody raise their hand. (laughs) Well, I want to go to heaven. No, we don't. We're scared to death we're going to go to heaven. (laughs) We do everything we can to prevent going to heaven. We're scared to death. Because to go to heaven, you've got to die. And we don't want to die. So we're going to hide. Cower in fear. We don't want to go to heaven. We just want to go to heaven when we don't have a choice. Right now, we're trying to have a choice. We don't want to go to heaven. So we live in fear. Talking about prayer. Yeah. <laughs> It may not be obvious to you tonight, but you just hang on this week. The Holy Ghost is trying to change our whole concept of prayer. And when our concept of prayer changes and becomes biblical and we begin to understand how we're supposed to pray and what prayer is supposed to be and how we're supposed to participate in it, the adversary is going to be shaking in his boots. Because what he's afraid of more than anything else is the people of God understanding the power they have in prayer. But we don't believe we have power in prayer because we spend all our time trying to convince God to fix stuff we don't like and take our pain away and make us happy. Oh, I became a Christian so God could make me happy. Really? Yeah. Blessed are they which are persecuted. Didn't that say that? Well, the Greek word there for blessed literally means to be happy. So when he wants you happy, he just lets you be persecuted. What are you laughing at? You don't believe me? Let's go to Matthew chapter Matthew chapter 5. Let's go to Matthew chapter 5. Let's read all the ways the Lord wants to make you happy. Don't groan like that. I'm telling you the truth. 
Seeing multitudes, he went in the mountain when he was set. And his disciples came unto him. Next verse. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed. The Greek is happy to be envied. Blessed are they that are poor in spirit. For they shall be called, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Next verse. Blessed are, happy are they that mourn. You don't want to be happy. We want to pray everything off of us that would make us happy. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Next verse. Blessed, happy are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Next verse. Blessed, happy are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Next verse. Blessed are the merciful, happy are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Next verse. Blessed are the pure in heart, happy are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Next verse. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Next verse. Blessed, blessed are they which, blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness sake. Happy are they which are persecuted for righteousness sake. You want the Lord to make you happy? Stop fussing about persecution. Stop hiding from persecution. No, happy to us means he takes all our problems away. All our pain away. All our pressure away. <laughs> You're funny, man. You're really funny. It's like, it's like you've been run over by a truck. <laughs> you going to need somebody to carry you out of here or you on life support or whatever. Well, we're going to pull the plug on that life support and let you die because it's time to die. <laughs> Had a preacher call me a few months ago. He said, Brother Wright, I'm losing my job. I'm losing my business. I'm losing my house. I'm losing my car. What's going on? I said, God's trying to kill you and you're trying to prevent it. If you just give up and die, God can take some of this away. But you're the most stubborn man I know because you're going to make, you're going to keep God from helping you die. And you say you want to live and you want to see revival, but you got to die first and you're doing everything you can to prevent that. That's kind of harsh, brother, right? What? I was supposed to lie to him? Oh, poor man. I don't know what God's thinking letting you go through all this. He said, this isn't fair. We can all join Peter in the bow of the boat. Carest thou not that we perish? <laughs> right? <clears throat> we, could, we, could, we could join Peter and have a choir. Wake up, Jesus. Don't you care? We're perishing. Poor old Jesus. Didn't know when he told him to go to the other side of the lake, there was going to be a storm. Peter needed to wake him up and let him know there was a storm. Do you know why Peter didn't wake him up until the boat was filled? Because Peter and three of the other disciples, at least, were professional fishermen. And to be professional fishermen, you had to be professional sailors. And they'd been in storms before, and they'd handled storms. And so they didn't wake him up because we've got this. We can do this. 
So they didn't bother to wake him up until the boat was full and they could no longer save themselves. And then instead of saying, Jesus, we're about to sink. No, 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 no. Couldn't do that. Don't you care? We're about to drown. And Jesus was really kind because you know what he could have stopped and said? Don't you care that you're about to drown because you waited to call on me till it's beyond your ability? Why didn't you call on me as soon as the storm came up before there was any water in the boat? No, you got this. So we Pentecostals are professional panic prayers. We go through our, the motions and we give lip service to prayer until an emergency comes and then it's, ah, God, don't you care? And he goes, I care more than you. You haven't cared at all. If you cared, you wouldn't be doing all this yourself. If you cared, you'd be calling on me before. Not after or during, if you cared. So the problem is not whether or not he cares. The problem is how much we care. Because when I don't pray till it's an emergency, that's panic praying. Now, I've been driving since I was 14. And my, I, 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 don't, I don't know how I was blessed to have such a wonderful wife. I've ridden with guys that their wives nagged them where they're driving. Be careful. Don't do that. Don't go here. Stop, stop. Ah, ah. No, 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 no. I've, I've uh, I, you know, I've never hit a woman, but there's been a few times I'm thinking to myself, brother, what is your problem <laughs> if you can't can't you at least say something she's driving me up the wall and I'm not driving <laughs> but mine doesn't do that no 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 no. she never talks to me about my driving she just goes right over my head I'm doing something I don't even think it's an emergency she goes she's 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 <laughs> I got to be honest with you. That's one prayer session. Gets on my nerves. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I wish I was joking. <laughs> this is serious. This is exactly the way it is. I'm not slowing down quick enough. There's a car stopped in front of us. It's not, Chester, there's a car. No, it's, Jesus, 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 Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> Hey, wait just a minute here. I thought I was the husband and the head of the family and, and, the, and Christ is the head of the man. And what are you doing bypassing the chain of command? <laughs> You're just skipping the whole thing, going straight to the boss, telling on me. <laughs> That's what it feels like. <laughs> 
And when I'm really spiritual, I don't say a word. I just, okay, all right, okay, Jesus, she has a right to pray. It's okay, whether I agree with it or not. <laughs> when I'm not having a great day and I'm not especially spiritual, who God, it kind of really gets on my nerves a little bit, honestly. You, you, you're going to pay pray because it's an emergency? We haven't hit anybody yet. <laughs> Close. That's us Pentecostals, you see. We are the best panic prayers there are. But the problem is, it's really difficult to have a right attitude toward God. And you're panic praying. Jesus, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Huh? Really? We sent you a message. Why didn't you come while he was sick? If you would have come while he was sick, you'd have healed him. He wouldn't have died. We wouldn't have gone through all of this. Where were you? What was going on so important that you didn't show up? This is Martha. Do you know how many meals I've cooked for you? And Mary's followed you around all over the place, all the time at your feet, listening to what you got to say. And Lazarus is our brother, and he's supposed to be your friend. And we called you, sent messages to you, and you didn't come. And this is how much faith we've got, Jesus. If you would have come, our brother would not have died. And he says, where is he? Well, he's behind this rock over here. Move the rock. Lord, he stinks. He's been dead four days. <laughs> he's getting ready to resurrect your dead brother. And all that faith you had for what God would have done before he died, you got none of it now. All you're concerned about is the odor. And what really stinks is your attitude. I'm going to say it again tonight. Search the scripture. Find one place where the Son of Man prayed for himself well he was God no God was in that man but God can't die and the man died that man was the son of God son of man and you and I are sons of God And he could die. And we can die. But he never prayed for himself. Come follow me. Well, foxes have holes. And birds have nests. But the Son of Man doesn't have any place to lay his head. 
Was he saying, poor me? No, he's saying, this is the degree to which I have given up my rights to a life. I've chosen to not be tied down to a home so that I can be free to put the kingdom of God and the lost first. Some of y'all precious, wonderful, single young people of this church, oh, you're bugging God to death over getting married. I love my wife. I couldn't be single again if I had to be. God have mercy, please. I don't ever want to go through that. I am a really selfish dude. I'm going to tell you that right now. Because she would, she'd survive no problem. I, I, she'd miss me, but she's strong. She'd survive without me. I can't, I can't, I couldn't make it. Not because I don't have somebody to do this and that and the other for me, but because I'm that spoiled. Because she is content doing the things that allow me to live out here. If I had to do all these things that she's good at, if I had to do them, I wouldn't have the time or the energy to live out here in the spirit. It would immediately change my ability to do that. I'm going to say this to you that are single. When God's ready, the right person will be there. But if you mope around feeling sorry for yourself, pouting, because God hadn't given you a wife or a husband yet, you're missing out on one of your greatest opportunities in the kingdom of God because Paul said the married person can't just please God. they got to please a mate. I belong to God. Oh, yeah, I belong to God. But when I got married... My body became hers. Hers became mine. I don't, I don't own me twice. God owns me. She owns me. I don't have anything left that's mine. <laughs> and the problem is learning how to discern which one gets priority of my time at any one moment. But a single person, they don't have that problem. single person has the opportunity to give themselves to God without reservation. Yeah, the book says it's not good for man to be alone, and I assume that since God planned for a woman to be what was the part that it wasn't good for man to be alone from, that it's not good for a woman to be alone. I understand that. All that's biblical. But there's a timing to everything in God. And when you live miserable because it's not your time yet. If my calculations are, set, uh, are, are accurate, you either just turned 60 or about to be 60 or 61 somewhere in there, 63. Okay, my 
understanding was a little off. Okay, so you're about eight years younger than me. About eight. Trust me. Those are a huge difference. How old are you? 59. Just a spring chicken. <laughs> I, thought, I thought I was old at 60. Trust me. 60 is not old at all. It's not old. And yet at the same time, I'm around people that are 80. I'm going, I'm pretty young. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I don't have to spend time around somebody's 80 very long, even really spry, healthy people that are 80. It just irritates me to death. If people ever say this about me, I hope they say it behind my back. I don't want to hear it. You get 80 and they go, isn't he doing good? <laughs> Isn't it amazing how good he looks? You mean I don't look like a cadaver yet? <laughs> Is that what you're saying? I don't look like I'm about to be disconnected from life support? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> really? If you've been around very long, you've probably heard Brother Willoughby or some others talk about Brother T.W. Barnes, a great prophet of God. He died. He was almost 93 years of age. I preached for him. He was 90. He wanted to take me to eat. I said, I'll meet you there. He said, no, I'll come by and pick you up. <laughs> Brother Barnes is a prophet of God, you know. You hang on every word he says. So I get in the car with him. This 90-year-old guy's riding down the road, and he says, Brother Wright, I just want you to know, he's totally serious. You're a man of great faith. And I'm going, wow. <laughs> Brother Barnes Brother Barnes says, I have great faith. And after I took the bait, ah, he goes, you're riding in a car driven by a 90-year-old man. <laughs> And I thought to myself, I really wish you hadn't pointed that out. Uh, seriously, I didn't say that, but I thought it. I, 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 I really wanted to meet you at the restaurant. I did not want to ride with you, but you insisted, and now you've got to rub it in. You've got to build me up and chop the legs right out from under me all at one time. Yeah. You know what, why God designed that we get old? Because if I'm too stubborn to be dependent upon him when I'm young, if I live long enough, he designs it where the older I get, the more I have to depend. You're born with people changing your diaper. If you've lived long enough, people will be changing your diaper again. It's built in. It's designed in life that all of your strength dissipates. So the closer you get to the end, the more you have to acknowledge what you can't do and how much you need God. One of my favorite, I'm the district superintendent of the Maryland, D.C. district at home. 
one of my favorite things to do is coming up in a couple of months, I go to the youth camp and I do morning devotions. I'm superintendent. They don't ask me. <laughs> I say, I'm doing morning devotions. Oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. We'll, we'll put that time right in here because it's one of my favorite things to do. And you know what I really love about that? There's one advantage that I've got over those young people. I've been young. They've never been old. Seriously. You look at me like I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> you, you don't understand something. I can vividly remember being your age. You got no memory of being me or my age. You don't know what this feels like. I know what that feels like. I have vivid memories of what that feels like, what those challengers were like. So don't tell me I'm too old to be able to talk to you. You're too young to be able to identify with me. But the Holy Ghost will let me identify with you. Been there. Know what it was like to pray and pray and pray for God to give you the person he wants you to live the rest of your life with. And foolishly try to help God out a few times. And him have to cause great pain in me and others to spare me of a big mistake. You see, I've told this story here before, so I'm not going to tell the whole story. I was engaged to be married my last year at the Naval Academy. Engaged to be married. And we were having a discussion on the phone in February. We're supposed to be married the 7th of June. It's February. June, that's not very far apart. And we're on the phone having this discussion. And we begin to disagree about what our priorities were going to be as a family. And I got off the phone. And I found a place to pray. And I said, now, Lord, you know how you pray and you know he's going to give you the answer you want. But you're just praying because you'll feel better. When he gives you that answer, well, it doesn't always work like that. So I prayed, Lord, is this your will for me to marry this girl? And I'm absolutely positive he's going to say, yes, son, it's going to be all right. That's not what he said at all. He said, she's not, just these exact words, she's not my will for you. I, I've been engaged now for months. We got a wedding date set. It's three months away. I'm getting married. And he says, she's not my will for you. And I said, why are you just now telling me this? He said, because you're just now asking me. And it was true. I had made all kind of assumptions based on circumstances and feelings. And they weren't God. They weren't God. Can you imagine that? The second most important decision in your entire life. First is whether or not you're going to be saved. Second of all, who's going to be your life partner for the rest of your life? The second most important decision in your life. And you don't pray about it. You make assumptions based on circumstances and 
Feelings? Oh, we're in love. Yeah. Yeah. I've been in the ministry over 48 years, 49 in June. I have done hundreds of weddings. I've never married two people who were in love. I married a bunch of people that thought they were. I'm going to say that again. I have never married two people that were in love. I married a bunch of people that thought they were. Well, you mean all those people weren't married in the will of God? I didn't say that. I said even though they prayed, they were basing most of their decision on feelings and they thought they were in love. <laughs> Spend all the time you want to with somebody. But until you make vows and you can't leave when things aren't going well, you don't even know that person. I'm still talking about prayer. How does God really know us? How does God help us to really know ourselves until we go through situations that bring stuff out of us? Yeah, so many people, they just don't understand the purpose of marriage. Marriage is part of the fantasy, to live happily ever after. Well, let me tell you something. Part of the reasons for being married is nobody can bring your hidden stuff out of hiding like your mate can even if they're not trying to. And since God can't deal with what I'm not acknowledging is in my life, part of giving you a mate is to force that stuff to the surface. Oh, yes, it is. I don't know anybody that's ever really been married in the first 10 years. The first 10 years at least is a competition to see who's going to win. It's true. It's true. First 10 years at least is a competition. See who's going to win. See who's going to lose. And you keep score. And, of course, single people sitting in this room going right now, it's not going to be like that for me. Nah, it's not at all. It's going to be worse for you. It's going to be 15 years. This is the honest truth for God. I don't know how she survived me. I was five and a half years older than her, and I somewhere got the stupid idea I was supposed to finish raising her. It took me 10 years to realize she was more mature than me the day we got married. If anybody needed finish raising, it was me.
And we bring all this natural stuff into the kingdom of God. And we try to apply all of this to the things of God rather than letting God apply all of his stuff to our lives. <laughs> he said, uh, don't use vain repetition because that's what the heathen do. They think by their much hearing, their, their gods will hear them. They're gods of stone and gods carved out of wood and whatever. They think by their much talking, their gods will hear them. And so with Pentecostals, we would never do that, would we? Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Glory to God. Glory to God. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. And our favorite, Jesus, 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 Jesus. And if we're really spiritual, it's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And if we're really desperate, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And we're conditioned to believe that's normal and that it's prayer. And it is so unbiblical. It's ridiculous. It is us treating God like a piece of stone or wood we've carved and set up on a ledge someplace that we call our God. I, some of you have heard me say this before, but I promise you. Oh, I promise you. <laughs> All I'd have to do is go, Alice, 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 Alice. Alice, 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 Alice. Alice, we'd be having trouble. <laughs> we would be having trouble. Why? First of all, the first time or two I said it, I might be considered sweet, but it would quickly get sour. What? What? But I'm not listening to the what. All I'm focusing on is Alice, Alice. And she's going, what? And I'm, Alice, Alice, Alice. I got a question for you. Name one answer to that prayer you've ever received, ever received. Name it. Name it. Tell me one thing God has ever done for you, praying that good old Pentecostal time filler. Tell me. You can't, can you? Because he can't answer prayers that he doesn't accept as prayer. Or, or our favorite. Lord, I need something to eat. I need something to wear. I need, I need, I need transportation. I need some place to live. 
uh, I know you don't know about all this. He said the Gentiles, the fatherless Gentiles seek after that. My children have a father. You don't need to pray for what you're going to eat, for what you're going to drink, what you're going to put on, where you're going to lay down. Because you got a father. Well, what do we pray for? Our needs. As if he didn't know and needed to be reminded. And what do we not do? We don't participate with him in praying for the lost. Well, what, what, what if he doesn't give me anything to eat? You mean like Paul? Yeah, like Paul. You know the guy that wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost? My God shall supply all your need according to riches and glory. The same guy that wrote, I will take pleasure in my infirmities, reproaches, necessities, persecutions and distresses. You know what a necessity is? You have a need that's not met. And Paul said, I'm going to take glory in that. Because my infirmities are going to make me weak. So God can be strong. And his power can rest upon me. You ever read where Paul said he was in hungerings oft and fastings oft? Difference between fasting and hungering is. if you, Fasting is you've got food and choose not to eat it. Hungering is you'd eat, but you don't have anything to eat. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul was often, according to him, in situations where he would have eaten and had nothing to eat. But if we didn't have anything to eat, we're going to be beaten on the door of heaven. I thought you said, I thought you said, how come you're not helping me here? Why am I going without? I'm hungry. Why? Why aren't you doing anything about this? Why? And Jesus said, Jesus said, I feed the birds of the air, clothe the grass of the field. You can't trust me. I'm your father. I'm almost done for the night. This is so different than what I thought it was going to be, but in Jesus' name, hear me, please. All of this is about one thing. If I'm truly going to be a part of what God's doing, I have got to be able and willing to trust the Father. I've got to be willing to trust the Father. I've got to be willing to trust the Father. Who's in control of your spaces here?
the Father or the government? The day you believe that, all distress and pressure will be gone. The day you believe that the Father is the one in control and not the government is the day all that stress and pressure will be gone. Hear me, please. You cannot have peace and pressure inside at the same time. It's impossible. If I have pressure, I'm not trusting my father. If I have peace, I'm trusting my father. First Peter five, five, please. First Peter five and five. We're going to wind this down and we're going to talk about, actually talk about prayer and let you see how this kind of works together, what I've been talking about tonight. Likewise, you younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. We all know that, right? Yeah, God is against those proud folks. Well, let's wait and let God tell us who the proud are. We might be not be so quick to rejoice about how God gets those proud folks. Next verse. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. That he may exalt you in due time. What did he say? God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Therefore, what I'm about to say is based on the statement that was just made. Or the statements just made. God resists the proud. He is the opposer of the proud. Just a few verses later in this same chapter, the Bible says, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. When the Bible says God resists the proud, same Greek word translated by the same English word. God resists the proud just like we're called to resist the devil. Resist the proud. And God, he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, since you know God works against the proud, and helps the humble. It's highly recommended that you humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. That he may exalt you or pick you up, lift you up in due time. So how do I humble myself before God? Next verse. Casting all your care upon him. For he, what? He does not carry your burdens for you. There's no two R's there. There's not two R's. It's one R. In other words, if I've cast my care, I've stopped caring 
about what I cast. And if anybody's going to care about what I cast, he's going to care about it. That guy called me and said, I'm losing my business and everything. What's going on? I said, you need to die. Well, how am I going to know when I'm dead? When it's okay for your church to completely fail and you have to shut the door because the bank's going to come take it? You've done, you're dead. As long as you're trying to work against God, preserve it your way, through your own ability, you're not dead. Or in this context, you're not humble. Casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. He cares in your stead. I got a question. Anybody in this room doesn't have a problem? Everybody's got some kind of problem. Right? Now, who do you want to be the one caring about that problem? God or you? Are you ready for this statement? He's not going to share the caring with you. You want him to care? You've got to so completely release it to him that you don't care what the outcome is. You no longer even have a preference of how it turns out. Brother, I don't like that. You're not dead. You know what? You go to a funeral, person's laying there in the casket. It might have been really hot outside getting to that funeral. Do they care? Nah. You might have bills due. Do they care? Nah. It might be raining outside. Do they care? No, they're dead. When you're dead, he'll do the caring. And you won't. And there won't be any pressure. He said, I come to bring life. And that more abundantly. Everybody gets life when they first get saved. But you can't have abundant life till you learn to cast. Because the pressure of my problems steals the abundant possibility out of my life. I can't have abundant life while I'm carrying. Just for time's sake, you go to Luke chapter 8 and you read about the four types of ground and you talk about the thorny ground, right? What are the three things that prevent thorny ground from producing fruit? Love of riches, love of pleasures. Well, we all know that. How about this one? And the cares of this life. You can come to church and never be used of God to produce anything in his kingdom while you're carrying your cares. They prevent fruitfulness. Folks, this isn't just nice words. This isn't just some flowery stuff. This is the way the Lord 
wants us to live every day of our lives. Why? Because while you're carrying your burdens, he can't let you carry his burdens. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn, and, and, and uh, take, come unto me, all ye that labor and, ha- and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me that I'm meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls, because my burden is easy, and my yoke is light. You weary carrying yours, cast them on me. Then I'll let you get in the yoke with me and let you share in my burdens. But they won't feel heavy to you because I'm in the yoke with you doing the work. This is real stuff, folks. This isn't just theology or theory. This is the way it is. And since the first Friday night of August 2003, I have lived like this every day of my life. First Peter chapter 3, verse 11. We just read, read First Peter chapter 5. Let's look at First Peter chapter 3, verse 11. Let him eschew evil. And do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. How do I get peace? Casting all my cares upon him. What is that? Being spiritually minded. Because if I'm spiritually minded, it's life and peace. So if I'm not casting my cares, I am proud and God resists me. All of my efforts to take care of what I carry about, God is the enemy of my efforts to fix what I'm trying to fix instead of trusting him with it. Not only is he my adversary in it, okay, (laughs) but now, (laughs) oh God, that's hard to accept, isn't it? That if I don't cast my cares, God's not neutral. He now becomes the enemy of my efforts. So I'm not only proud, but now I'm also carnally minded because to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. So let him eschew evil. Let him seek peace and ensue it. Next verse. I just really noticed this, how they went together today. For, for this cause. Let's, go, let's read the previous verse and come to this again. Let him eschew evil. Let him do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For, the word for is a conjunction. It tells you what God's going to do based on, because of, on account of what you just did in the previous verse. By eschewing evil, by seeking peace and pursuing it, the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them to do evil. What is evil? Flesh. Trying to play God. Flesh wanting to do its own thing, get its own way, rather than casting its cares on God so I can participate with the kingdom of God. That's strong language, brother, right? I've never heard anything like that in my life. I, 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 you know, I, I, 
You know what's so sad? Apostolics coming to church weighted down with all their problems because they don't know how to trust the Father and therefore they don't have any mental, emotional, or spiritually energy for the lost because they burn it all out dealing with stuff that is not the will of God for them to deal with. And then finally, he's all fit together, and here it is. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Philippians 4 and 6. Be careful. That's old King James, 1611 English. It's don't be anxious. Don't be full of care for anything. Now, brother, right, that's just not realistic. You know, it's just the way we are. We, we, just have to, we just have to have some kind of anxiety or worry, really. So, in other words, I can't trust my father. He doesn't know what he's doing. He needs my help. You know how old he is. I'm not even sure his eyes still work really good. And he's all the way, way up there on that throne in heaven. He, how can he see what's going on down here in my life? He doesn't know that. I got to remind him what he's supposed to be doing, how he's supposed to be doing, and when he's supposed to be doing it, because he obviously doesn't really pay attention. Brother Wright's not like that. Oh, our actions prove it's like that. And our prayer prove it's like that. Be careful for nothing. But in what? How much? Everything. By what? Prayer and with what? Let your request be made known unto God. Now, here it is. Look, preacher. Look. We, look at all the requests we can make. Look. Well, wait, let's put these verses together because you no scriptures of any private interpretation. That means you can't interpret a verse independent of the other verses. So what are the requests this is talking about? The requests that he take this care, that he take this care, that he take this care so that I can have peace. So what am I doing? What's my request? I'm not praying and asking him to do something specific for me. I'm giving him everything that's causing me anxiety. And how do I know that's the result? Because of the next verse. And the peace of God, which surpasses, is superior to all understanding, shall keep, guard, Preserve, protect your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. Oh, brother, there's a verse that says I can ask anything. You're not reading the verse I read. First Peter 5 tells me what I'm supposed to be requesting. I'm supposed to be requesting for the grace of God to empower me to release, to give and release all of these things to God, to let them go.
And I want, everything is causing me anxiety. My request is, here it is, Father, take it, take it, take it, take it. I can't carry this. I can't fix it. (laughs) You know what? How many days I spent asking God to do stuff because I thought that's what I was supposed to do. Telling him what I thought needed to be done. How I thought it ought to be. I thought that was right. Isn't that what prayer is? Isn't that that the way we were taught to pray? We tell God what we want. How we want it. I mean, he's the king of kings, right? What's his favorite restaurant? Burger King. (laughs) And you know why? Their theme is have it your way. So you go in there to order, you sing, have thine own way, Lord. How do you want this hamburger ordered? I'm trying to get your attention here a minute. You're tired. Okay? The point is, We think faith is knowing what to tell God to do in prayer when real faith is giving it up to him, understanding that his ways are above our ways. His thoughts are above our thoughts. And his way of dealing with our situation is so far beyond anything we could even come up with. When I ask for something specific, except when I'm told by God what to ask for, I have limited God. When, when God hasn't told me what to ask for, and I ask for something specific, I just limited God. Because there's no way that my mind can comprehend what his mind knows. I love this. The peace of God which passeth all understanding. What's that talking about? It's the favorite thing we ask for in prayer. And we all do it. Ready? Why God? We don't want him to just fix our problem. We want him to answer the question. Why has this happened? Hear me. Hear me. (laughs) Hear God. The Lord will never answer the question why till the answer doesn't matter to you at all. Because needing to know why is unbelief and lack of trust because my father his ways are above my ways his thoughts are above my thoughts and he doesn't have to explain to me why my responsibility is just to trust him and what I've talked about tonight 
in such very basic terms without getting any great depth or extent of it is the foundation for real prayer. Because until I get past the point of believing that prayer is my privilege to, to, get, to talk to God, to get him to fix everything I don't like, and to give me what I want, how I want it, when I want it, until I get past the understanding that I was erroneously given somehow, that that's what prayer's about, I will never truly pray. And I will never see God use me in a way that is amazing and awesome. Never. I'll never see it. I don't know how much of it tomorrow I'll get to go through. But here's the verse. Ephesians 3 and 20. Now, now, unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. But that's not the end of the verse. According to the power that's at work in us, that's operative in us. Now, I have a question. In how many lives of how many believers and how many churches is that verse being lived out on a daily basis? Brothers and sisters, this is the will of God. This is the place he wants you to get in prayer. This is what he's willing to do through you in prayer. But you've got to get stuff by his grace working in and through you. You've got to get stuff out of the way that's hindering you from getting to the now. Trust me. And I don't mean trust me. But believe me when I say this. The Lord sent me here this year so that I could be some small part of a conduit for him to change your whole comprehension of prayer so that by the time we're done Friday night, you will know how to pray and how not to pray to see God do exceeding abundantly above all you could ask or think. And I want you to see something, please. He didn't say, according to the power that worketh in the preachers. He didn't say that. I'm asking you to do this. You've been sitting. I've been standing. I'm going to sit. You stand. I want you to raise your hands a minute. We're not dismissing right now. I want you to raise your hands. And in your own words, I want you to say to the, to the Father, Father, I, I, I don't want to disrespect any of my elders or my previous pastors or my present pastor. But whatever you've got to do, Father, bring me to the place.
by your grace where I'm praying biblically and not traditionally, where I'm praying effectual and fervent prayers and not just praying uh, religious prayers that accomplish nothing. Here I am, Father. I can't get myself there. I can't make that work in me. But by your grace, I present myself to you for you to work this in me in Jesus' name. In the name of Jesus. 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 Hallelujah. 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 In the name of Jesus. 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 Hallelujah. 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 Come on. Come on. I know you're physically weary. But this is what you came for. This is what the Lord is wanting to do in your life. We're going to pray this week. But the purpose isn't about the prayer that you pray this week. The purpose is, how are you going to pray Saturday? How are you going to pray Sunday? How are you going to pray next week? How are you going to pray the week after that? And the week after that? And the month after that? Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. 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 Mikia tahaya la rada die kalarata tatahaya. Jesus name Jesus name Jesus name Jesus name Hallelujah I beg your forgiveness 
if what I'm about to do sounds presumptuous. Okay? I am submitted to the authority of this church. But I've been granted liberty to exercise authority under that authority while I'm here. So, this is only the first day. Go home. Don't stand around here talking. Go home. You're going to need every bit of rest you can muster. It's available. You don't have time to stand around and fellowship. I know that's normal, and normally it's okay, but in this meeting, it's not. Be kind to people, courteous, as you're walking. <laughs> Move. Go get some rest. As you're already figuring out, it's not the physical fatigue that's the challenge. It's the mental and, a, and emotional and spiritual energy that's being used to, to be able to receive this. Why? Because our flesh resists every single word that's being said. Not because we're bad people, but because we got bad flesh. There, Paul said, in me that is in my flesh, there dwelleth no good thing. Your flesh doesn't want this. So you, you, you know, it's taking, we will get over a hump. There will be a, there will be a point in this meeting at some point tomorrow or hopefully tomorrow, but if not Thursday sometime, we will get over a hump where we will be past all of this resistance of the flesh. There's no real resistance coming in the spirit at all. It's just flesh. Flesh weary, just sitting, just having to absorb these blows that are so contrary to what we're used to. And, and f f boy, flesh has a problem with that. That's why you need some rest. You need rest. God bless you. you have anything you need to say? Please, I love you. I'm not trying to be unkind, inconsiderate, whatever. Please go home.